Well, good morning, Berean Bible Church. It's a blessing to get the opportunity to preach again here with you. We're going to go through part two of our series. And even as Rod was teaching us through 2 Peter chapter 3, you see that at the end of time, God is coming with justice and grace. Justice and grace. And justice and grace is a familiar theme to the Bible. It's one that we'll be looking at as we look at Genesis 3. You can turn there in your Bibles, Genesis 3. That's where we'll spend our time today, as promised from last week. It's a two-part series. We're looking at the question, why come? Why come? That's the question we want to tackle this morning. Why did the Savior, why did Jesus Christ have to come? And we'll see that, a really clear picture of that in, in Genesis chapter 3. Three fingers raised. Three fingers raised, thumb touching the digitus minimus, the pinky finger, all with the palm facing out. This would be the position of attention taken by a boy scout when giving the promise of the scouts, the scout promise. And what is the scout promise? It's a set of three declarations that indicate character. What, was, what are the promises of the boy scouts? Well, they are these. On my honor, I will do my best to do my duty to God and my country and to obey the scout law, to help other people at all times, to keep myself physically strong, mentally awake, and morally straight. And since 1910, the Boy Scouts of America have a rich and vast history of seeking to instill character into young men. As an organization, they become part of the fabric of the American experience. And in 1990, they were called to stand and defend their character when it became known through an interview that one of their scoutmasters, James Dale, was a homosexual. To their credit, the Boy Scout leadership expelled Mr. Dale, to which he promptly grabbed hold of legal representation and fought for his right to violate the character of the Boy Scouts organization. For 10 years, this case would be litigated all the way up to the Supreme Court where a final decision would need to be made. And that ruling was had In the year 2000, the ruling came down from the Supreme Court in favor of the Boy Scouts. Again, Scout leadership stood strong on their character. They stood for righteousness. They conformed themselves to the ways of truth and honor. Why go all the way to the Supreme Court? Why take this fight all the way to the Supreme Court? Because character matters. Honor matters. There's a necessity to state your purpose and your rules and have courage then and integrity to back them up, regardless of the cost. This is why they went. Why go all the way to the Supreme Court? Because righteousness and justice demand that they go. Because failure to go destroys their organization by violating the scout promise. Here's the issue. Either spoken words have meaning and intent derived from an unshakable will to keep them, or words are worthless. So the Boy Scouts go, and they win, and righteousness dominates the day. Fast forward to Wednesday, December 12, earlier this week. The Boy Scouts of America has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. The reason... They have multiple pending lawsuits against them where scouts are claiming to have been sexually abused. I want you to consider this timeline with me. 1990, they expelled Scoutmaster James Dale for homosexuality. 2000, they win the right to be morally straight from the Supreme Court. 
2014, they opened scouting ranks to gay boys. In 2015, they opened scouting to gay leadership. Scouting leadership becomes open for gay men. Even this year, 2018, they opened scouting, boy scouting, to girls. And now they're opening up a Chapter 11 bankruptcy filing. See how the flow of things works? What does this say about the three-finger scout promise? What does this say about integrity and honor in the Boy Scout ranks? Here's a question for them. Is the Boy Scout's character fixed in holiness and righteousness? It is not. Consequently, when rebellion challenged Scout character, rebellion won. The Boy Scouts ditched justice and dumped honor in the process, and now they are plagued with sexual abuse lawsuits and declining membership. It is truly perplexing. Why go all the way to the Supreme Court to uphold your character and justice and morality in 2000 only to change your character 14 years later? And this takes us to our question of the past two weeks. Why come? Why come? It is a question of character. We've been brought to the Christmas season yet again. The whole world is only nine days away from celebrating the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And my hope is that at this season, this time, that you get a chance to slow down life, slow down and consider this baby in the manger as you drive by the nativity scenes at the houses near you, or it's right there on your dinner table. Consider the baby in the manger and ask him the question, why come? Why did you come? Why come and be subjected to the cruelty of this cursed planet and all of sinful humanity? Why come? The most popular answer in the world is this. He came to die for our sins. And this is a valid answer. It is right. But remember, as we discussed last week, this is a secondary answer. The primary answer is because the character of God demands that Christ come. You put these two things together, the secondary answer and the primary answer, and the answer to the question, why come, is this. The character of God and the condition of humanity demand Jesus come. The character of God and the condition of man demand Jesus come. That's why the baby's in the manger. Genesis 1 and 2 showed us how God's holiness and His righteousness are such important facets of His character. He is distinct, and He has laws and rules that are righteous. As well, we saw the condition of man, that man is not filled with the Holy Spirit, nor is man dependent or in, independent at creation or ever. We turn to Genesis 3, and we're going to see that justice and grace of God demand Jesus come as well. That's what we're looking at this morning, justice and grace the two second characteristics of God seen in Genesis 1, 2, 3 that we need to talk about. Justice and grace of God demand that Jesus come as well. And as you turn to Genesis 3 and consider with me the character of God, I want to put this thought into your mind as you're you're turning there. This, This thought is really helpful. Whatever God is, He is to Himself first. So is God loving? Well, yes, He is. Well, do you consider that God is loving to himself first and foremost. Is God gracious? What is grace? Grace is showing favor. God shows favor to himself first. Is God just? Yes, he is. He is most just for himself and for his namesake. 
justice being punishment for unrighteousness, even wrath, he will deliver. And what we see in Genesis 3, 1 to 7, is a challenge to God's righteousness that demands justice. God faces a rebellious challenge just like the Boy Scouts did. The value of God's words are under attack. The righteousness of God's command is called into question, and the validity of God's consequences will be tested. The question would be, will God ditch his character in the face of rebellion like the Boy Scouts did? No, no way, not a chance. In fact, Genesis 3 is going to show us how much God loves himself and can use rebellion to demonstrate his awesome character. And it is in response to the rebellion, we see God beautifully intertwining justice and grace. I really want you to see that theme as we read through this text, the intertwining of justice and grace. I'm sure you know the story of the rebellion that happens in Genesis 3. In a few short words, the serpent, who is Satan, has called God's words into question. His reasoning and logic work perfectly to deceive the woman and lead her into disobedience and rebellion to God by eating the fruit of the tree which God had commanded them not to eat. And Adam is then more than willing to participate in this rebellion. And in verse 7, we record... We have recorded for us the immediate consequences then of their actions. Verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Here is the rebellion. This rebellion creates an obligation on God because His commandment has been violated. And His righteousness demands justice and punishment of the lawbreakers. Will God bring death, as he said? Will God punish the wicked? Is this part of his character? God will not deny his character. Justice and grace are highly visible in Genesis 3. Justice in punishing rebellion. Grace in restoring perfection. But there are only a shadow. These are only a shadow in Genesis 3, of the ultimate justice and grace of God, which are seen in the birth, life, death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yet in Genesis 3, we have a necessary shadow that proves God will act to defend His character and to uphold the righteousness of His creation. Genesis 3 shows us God's justice and grace demand Jesus come. Genesis 3, we're Looking at a courtroom trial. This is a courtroom trial. God is the arresting officer. He is the prosecuting attorney. He's the judge and the bailiff. When we read through this text, we'll consider it in three scenes as it unfolds. The trial, the sentence, and the eviction. These three scenes, we'll look at the trial, the sentence, and the eviction. And at each scene, I want to observe with you the justice and grace and the intertwining of both in each of these three scenes, the trial, the sentencing, and the eviction. Adam and Eve are filled with guilt and shame at their nakedness and are found hiding from God is where we see them in the text. And please read with me next, and we'll quickly see that the trial will begin, and I want you to be looking for justice and grace in the text. Genesis 3, 8 to 13, the trial. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. 
Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. This is a courtroom drama. This is a trial scene right before our eyes. All the elements are present. We have the lawbreakers, Adam and Eve. We have the arresting officer, God, who has called Adam. He's called to him and said, where are you? You know, this question does not deny the omniscience of God in any sense at all, as some might believe, but rather it proves that God has a desire to condescend to man and to talk with him on man's level so that man can understand and even leave a perpetual record of the account for us. The question was not asked for God's benefit or for God to gain knowledge in any sense at all, but as a platform to get the man to speak, to get Adam to speak and thereby condemn himself. Did Adam have the right to remain silent? Not at all. God had asked a question and made Adam responsible to answer it. Failure would have been further rebellion. So thankfully, Adam actually spoke up here. And what information did Adam reveal about his state of being at this point? For the first time ever, Adam was experiencing in his body fear, guilt, anxiety, nakedness, shame. And now he is found hiding from God. The action that he took wasn't to go to the one that could fix him. It was to hide from the only one who had the answers. The effects of disobedience and sin have come quickly to these two people. And at this point, God turns from the arresting officer to the prosecuting attorney. He has two questions that are directed at uncovering more about what's in this man's heart. He says to him, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? This first question from God is a, is a stab or a take it, trying to grab hold of information. Adam never needed to know of his nakedness. He'd been living in the garden just fine with, without even knowing that. But now he was keenly aware of his nakedness. Interestingly, Adam was willing to share the information about nakedness, though it was personally embarrassing to him. And caused him to hide. But what information was still being withheld? What information was he hiding? What did he not reveal in his confession? He would not revealed his rebellion and disobedience to God. The second question then targets this disobedience. The bigger issue, the disobedience. God had given him a command and for life and for health and for joy and for love of all that's sacred and holy. And for Pete's sake, obey God. Obey him. But Adam did not take this route. And now he is staring down the barrel of the prosecutor's smoking gun, and he is faced with giving a one-word answer to this question, yes or no. And what did Adam foolishly do? He turns to the prosecutor and he fires off before the judge an 18-word answer. Don't you just love this? There's many dads in the room. And we all know that part of our job is being the prosecuting attorney and the judge in our own houses, right? You've had this happen before. Child is caught in disobedience and you get them to start talking, ask the question, float it out there, and they just keep coming, keep coming. Tell the story. Go ahead. Yeah, I want to hear more. Tell me more about what's going on there. As a prosecutor and the judge, 
You do your best to control your smile that is beginning to form behind that stern look. An 18-word answer. The judge is just loving this, just loving this. The lawbreaker just convicted himself and he did it in style. Did you see what Adam did here? Blame shifting, right? Blame shifting. Bodie Bauckham says that science has a whole discipline devoted to blame shifting. You know what it's called? Psychology. This is double blame shifting. This is double blame shifting. First, he blames God. The woman you gave to be with me, he says. The woman you gave to be with me. This is unthankful, arrogant, and evil because it assumes God did wrong in giving women. Brothers, did God do us wrong in giving us wives? No way. If you have a godly wife, you know you have found the blessed treasure of heaven. But great-grandpa Adam, he wanted to escape justice. So he accused God of the creation and distribution of unrighteous women. And then second, he accuses great-grandma Eve of the solicitation and distribution of unrighteous fruit. And so clearly, he's living in an unrighteous garden, and Adam couldn't help but be tempted and forced into this response, I ate. Well, these three answers are just fantastic. You have the confession of rebellion and disobedience in addition to the double blame shifting. God's work with Adam then is done. He turns to Eve and presents a follow-up question. By the way, did you notice that God went to the man first? He went to the man first. One aspect of righteousness in his creation was the order of creation. And part of the order is man being made first and the woman being made from man and given to man to be a helper. God loves his order in creation for marriage between a man and a woman. And God honors that order here in the text. The man bears the greater responsibility because of his function in creation. He is the head of the woman. So God, the prosecutor, turns second to Eve and asks, what is this you have done? She is not innocent, and clearly God knows all that she has done, but he wants her own words to condemn her as well. Eve answers God by saying, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. She learned quickly from her husband about this whole blame-shifting, this game. By the way, in psychology textbooks, how often do you read the word Jesus Christ or the word sin? The place where you need to run to. But she pulls off blame-shifting in a single, not a double, But she rightly assessed her situation and she gives a confession, both of which confirm her disobedience and rebellion. The case against these two is a slam dunk. This is the greatest and fastest prosecution in human history. We so clearly see in the text that deliberations are over and we're moving on to sentencing. But before we leave the trial and go to the sentencing side, let's look for a minute. The justice in punishing rebellion that has begun and the grace in restoring perfection that is going on and how they're beautifully intertwined in this text. Clearly, you see justice in God coming to the man in the garden and calling for him. God knew exactly what they were up to and that a rebellion had started and justice demanded that God go to Adam and address this unrighteousness. Equally, the grace of God is on display in that he didn't drop fire from heaven, but rather came with grace in a line of questioning. And the questioning was further gracious in that it allowed the man to speak and condemn himself in his own words. The questions themselves met every requirement of justice 
in looking to get the truth. At the same time, each question was a demonstration of the grace of God through his patience to these two rebels. In the order of the questioning also establishes justice of God by going to the man first in the pattern that he had established in creation. And even in the number of questions directed at the man and the woman, we see Adam with multiple questions and Eve with one. God's justice is seen. Justice and grace are proven powerfully to be in this text and to be so intricately intertwined with one another. I'd hope that you would never miss how twisted together grace and justice are. I would hope that you would understand also that grace and justice are two reasons why we gather every week here at this church to hear from God's word, because you need both God's justice in your life, and you need also desperately His grace. You know, what are the chances that someone here is experiencing, just like Adam, the fear of God today, shame for their conduct today, guilt over their own sin today, or even seeking to hide from God, though they sit among us in these pews? What are the chances that the questionings of your maker are prosecuting you every day because of your disobedience and your rebellion to him? Is the weight of his questioning burdening you? Is there one among us who is feeling the compounding pressure of their rebellion and God's justice begging for wrath to fall? Is that you, brother? If that's you, you've come to the right place Inasmuch as we teach the righteousness, justice, and wrath of God, which must punish all rebellion, equally, we teach the grace of God, which alone can end your fears, ease your burdens, and give you peace and rest. It is His grace. It is His grace alone that will end your running and hiding your shame and your guilt. Surely His just condemnation is for all rebels, yet He says to us who have been granted faith in Jesus Christ, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you need that today, don't leave without speaking to myself or Pastor Eric or one of the elders. We want to show you the grace of God that can only be the source of alleviation of that fear, the wrath and the justice of God. God's justice and grace are timely, meeting His need for glory and and our need for help. And in the garden, God's justice was delivered immediately. And we see this next in the text as we go through the trial and we turn to the sentencing of the rebels, the sentencing of the rebels, this second portion of this trial, Genesis 3, 14 to 18. Read the text with me. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be For your husband, and he will rule over you. And then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. 
and toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Clearly the context here is punishment. The context here is wrath and justice and righteousness is happening in this text. Earlier, we asked, will God punish? Will he punish the rebel? And here we get the definitive answer, yes, absolutely, God will punish the rebel. God begins with the serpent and the spirit controlling the serpent, Satan. He says, cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. This beautiful creature made to serve God and man would now become a perpetual reminder of the effects of man's rebellion. Perhaps for its beauty, it was used by Satan to gain access to Eve. And yet now the maker of all life removed the beauty of the serpent and reduced it to slithering on its belly all its days eating dust. Is there any injustice with God? None at all. The potter has right over the clay to shape it and fashion it as he wishes. And with the fall of the rebels into disobedience, so too the serpent fell from favor with God and was cursed. The effects of the curse continue to be seen today. And the punishment for Satan was continued in this, verse 15, so important. Verse 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Enmity is strife. It is conflict. It is fighting. And Satan would always experience conflict with the seed of the woman. This seed is plural, all of the offspring, the children, the grandchildren, every one of us. And then the text moves from the plural to the singular. Do you see that in the text? There is a great emphasis here. God says to Satan, the serpent, there will be one seed, one particular seed who you will encounter. And this one, he will bruise you on the head. This is to crush or to bruise or to fall on him. And you, Satan, will crush, bruise, fall on his heel. You know, if you're told you're going to be in a fight, what would you rather have said of the wounds that you will inflict? That you'll bruise someone's heel or that you'll bruise their head? Well, clearly, you'd want to bruise the head, to strike the head. Satan is told that he will be struck in the head. And the message is this. The one seed of the woman will deliver the death blow to your head, though you strike his heel. And the obvious question would be, who is the one? Who is the male seed of the woman who will crush Satan? He is the Lord Jesus Christ, the baby we all keep staring at in the major on the neighbor's lawn across from us in lights. The baby in the manger, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the first prophetic reference to Jesus Christ in the entire Bible. This prophecy creates the demand that Jesus come. And this helps to answer our question, why come to fulfill this prophecy of justice and grace? What a glorious promise for Adam and Eve for their ears to hear. Consider the power of this promise, this seed, this one man will one day end the influence of Satan eternally. And in this power, there is hope of eternal restoration between man 
and God. But the woman must conceive to begin to see what man-child will be given who can fix the curse of this sin. What do we know about the next generation? Adam and Eve were looking, looking for that child who would be the promised one. Is it Abel? Is it Cain? It wasn't Cain. He was tempted by Satan. And he, he did what? Oh, he killed Abel. Kill the seed that looks like it has promise. We see in the text, this birthing of children is going to be a problem for women. It's not going to be easy. God says, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. God designs then at this point in time as a consequence, pain in childbirth. It was never meant to be this way. But because of rebellion and disobedience, Eve and all women will suffer in childbirth. And as much as a child is beautiful and gorgeous, they're great, they're joyful, the pain of their birth will forever be a reminder of the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden and the rebellion and the consequence that came from that. Eve is not alone in this one consequence. There's a second unto it. Relationally, relationally, conflict will now mark the husband-helper relationship. Women won't want to be the helper. Rather, they will crave to be over, to have the position of the husband, to rule him, and yet he will remain the head of the woman. Countless, countless marriages are laid waste by this Garden of Eden curse that continues to plague humanity In the secular world, it shows up in the form of feminism. In the Christian world, it shows up in the form of egalitarianism. How many marriages in our country, even our own church, suffer from this curse? And yet it is not only the woman's curse, it is also the man's curse. Because men, we are so ready to divorce ourselves from responsibility, to ditch it, cut and run, and pick up our freedom and independence. We don't want responsibility And the woman's right there to step in and fill the gap. God doesn't let man get away with this. They'll get justice for sloth and selfishness. Just as Adam received God's wrath, Adam's punishment is next. God said, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Cursed is the ground. You know, time and time again, as I read through this text, I continually... Feel the weight of what those words mean. Cursed is the ground because of you. Everything, can you imagine if you're Adam? Everything that you would ever see again or touch, everything that you would place your eyes on, every place you would ever go, every animal that you would ever entertain for friendship would always be a reminder of your personal rebellion because they would suffer There would be decay, and ultimately everything in in front of you, all these animals would disintegrate. They would all come to nothing as a result of the curse that you brought. This is such a deep wound for Adam because his consequences laid over all of creation. It was given to him. It was given to him, the whole thing. Garden, till, keep the garden. I've made this for you. Eat everything, and now everything is cursed. It's a heavy punishment. It's extremely effective, however. You know, I'll never forget my time in officer candidate school and a brother named Diaz. Diaz was a a young man just like I at the time, and he got sick. He got sick. He had to spend a few days in sick bay. The second day, the drill instructors went to check on him, and as they went to check on him, they found Diaz asleep in sick bay. 
Well, when he walked out of sick bay, they promptly grabbed him and rushed him over to where the class was at. And the class happened to be marching into the chow hall. We were ready to eat some food. The drill instructors told Diaz, why don't you lay down? Why don't you cross your legs? Here's a helmet to slide under your head. Prop it up a little bit. Take a, take a little t-shirt, wad it up and, and lay down. Make sure you're comfortable. And there Diaz was laying, as the rest of us all heard for the next 10 minutes. Down up, down up, down up. Diaz's punishment was imputed to the whole class. His stripes given to us. So too, Adam's curse was imputed to all of creation. Adam was to blame, yet God cursed the ground, making it reluctant to yield its bounty, not only for Adam, but for all of humanity. Was there any injustice with the drill instructors? None at all. The lesson was learned and it was invaluable. And was there any injustice with God? No chance. God satisfied his justice in sentencing all rebels, both of these rebels and all of their offspring. Each punishment leaves a perpetual reminder of the agony of rebellion to God. When will you stop your rebellion? Satisfied with the sentencing, the judge now turns to the bailiff and escorts the lawbreakers to eviction from the Garden of Eden. And again, we need to evaluate the text for justice and grace. Before we launch into the eviction, let's look at the sentencing. We just went through this sentencing. Let's consider this sentencing for justice and grace. Do we see those two present? Well, they certainly are. Justice flows out of God's immediately going to the serpent and reducing a once beautiful creature to traveling on its belly. And Satan is cursed continually. He is cursed continually with hostility between himself and the children of Eve until such a time that one will come. One will come and eternally destroy Satan with a fatal blow to the head. Justice demands the permanent removal of evil eternally. And God delivers that in his curse of Satan and will ultimately fulfill it in the person of Jesus Christ. Yet grace is also seen in this text. God allowed life to continue. He didn't just completely wipe everybody out. This gave hope that reconciliation would come, that it would be desirable for God to reconcile his creation to him. Justice is given to the woman through pain and childbirth for her rebellion. Justice is given to the man as well, who watched his punishment get imputed to the whole creation. This perpetual reminder of the wickedness of his rebellion. And grace was especially noticed in the promise of a child who would come. The seed of a woman, he, he would come and crush Satan. Satan's influence one day will be removed from humanity. And the ultimate restoration with God will be had for Eve's offspring because of the one. You may be asking, where is justice for the word of God? God said in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Where is justice for those words of God? Justice demands that Adam and Eve die in the day that they sinned in the garden. Did this happen? And as I explain this to you, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3. Turn to John chapter 3. There are three ways that they could have died that day in the garden. Three ways to die in, in the garden that day. Eternally, physically, and spiritually. Eternally, physically, and spiritually. One of these three ways. Which of these three ways is the most gracious death to receive in that moment? Which is the most gracious death? If you die eternally, that's it. No more. This is almost like annihilationism. 
God could just start over if he wanted to. If you die physically, then two people burn in hell continually forever, and none are ever made righteous to live with God forever as he planned. Only, only if you die spiritually are you able to be raised to newness of life, to life as it was meant to be with God in Christ. And this is the call of Jesus to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. The leader of the Pharisees had come to Jesus at night, coward that he was. Immediately, Jesus tells him that he needs to be born again. Nicodemus gets wildly confused and he asks, how is it even possible? And look at verse 5 with me. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus said, let me tell you how they can be. You must look to and believe in the crucified Savior. I will be that guy. Verse 15, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Spiritual death was the most gracious death to die in the garden. Because as John 3 says, God had planned all along that spiritual life would only be given to those who believe in the word of God. Justice is served in that Adam and Eve did not die other than spiritually on that day. They did die. It was spiritually. And grace is given in that they would continue to live with hope of restoration. Again, hope of restoration if they do what? Believe in the word of God. In particular, I love Paul's question in Romans 9. I'd like you to consider this question in Romans 9. In Romans 9, 22, just as you're thinking about where we sit in the text and where this conversation is at, think of Paul's question in Romans 9. He says this. The question goes like this. What if God, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his grace and glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, even us. I love this question. Paul says God has always been willing to give justice, just as we see in Genesis 3. And it was his divine choice also to powerfully prove his grace 
through patience and long-suffering, allowing each generation successively of humanity to live their own life and use their own words to express their own character and defile themselves, proving their need for him. This is what he gave to us. As a result, all of humanity must be understood to be born spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. We don't have a self-esteem problem. We have a spiritual death problem. Everyone is a vessel of wrath of God, deserving only judgment. And yet God purposed great glory for himself in the display of his grace. The display of his grace poured out upon vessels of mercy. Even us, even us. Can you look on your own life and see that you, you were born spiritually dead? Where did you get that from? How much time do you need to spend with a two-year-old? Raise your hand. I'll sign you up right now for children's ministry. How much time do you need to spend with a two-year-old to realize the selfishness, foolishness, and fallenness of humanity? The fighting, the yelling, the manipulating, they come out so quickly. There's no lesson need to be taught for that to happen. God's justice demands that you receive the punishment that matches your crimes. His justice demands that. Perhaps you came today because you see and are feeling in your own heart and life the weight of justice, the justice of God and his wrath bearing down on your heart. It is my joy to tell you that spiritual death can be overcome in the person of Jesus Christ. The baby in the manger, it is my joy to tell you that God gives grace to the meek, to the lowly, to the broken. It is my joy to tell you that the baby in the manger, in that, in that scene out in front of someone else's lawn, that baby is the son of God. And he came to pay for the sins of all who would simply believe in him. The justice of God is automatic. It is going to happen. It will come to all rebels who do not believe his word. Brother Rod talked about that from 2 Peter 3. The wrath of God still will show up on this earth. But grace is a free gift given by God to those whom he chooses, resulting in faith, faith in the work and person of Jesus Christ to pay for sin. I'm not asking any one of you to choose Jesus. I'm not asking you to choose Jesus, to love Jesus, to swing open the doors of your heart to Jesus. I'm not asking you to do that. I am interested to know this. Did God choose you? Did God God give his free gift of grace to you? If he did, are you spiritually alive, desiring Christ and wanting to repent of sin? Finally, having been through the trial and the sentencing, the lawbreakers are going to be evicted. And even here, we see another instance of the great justice and grace of God. The eviction starts in verse 20. Now, the man called his wife's name Eve, Genesis 3, 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat 
and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Eviction is justice. Adam and Eve had to go. God could not allow them to stay near him and enjoy the perfection that he had created. However, this passage is dominated by grace. It's dominated by grace. I want you to see the grace in this passage. First, God allowed Adam to name his wife Eve. This is what he was doing in chapter 2, naming everything that God had created. And again, he is allowed to finish that which God started with him. God graciously allows the rebel to do the job of naming. Let's also consider the name Eve. It means life or living. She is the mother of all life and living. Dr. Henry Morris says that in picking this name, Adam indicated his faith in God's promises. That God would send the seed of the woman to bring salvation. Wow. Dr. Morris says this name was an act of Adam's repentance, turning from rebel to trust in God. Second, regarding grace in this text, God provides adequate covering for Adam and Eve by making for them coats of skins. And if we understand coats of skins, they must be cut from an animal. God sacrificed animals to provide for Adam and Eve and cover their nakedness and shame with the flesh of an animal. Can you imagine this scene if you're Adam and Eve? Here you have the wrath of God pouring out in his justice to Satan, to Eve, to Adam. All of humanity is cursed And next, they see the literal physical death for the first time, the blood being shed. This this contrast, it couldn't have been any greater for them. What an incredible day of contrast. You know, there's speculation as to, and probably rightly so, that these two animals that God sacrifices here to provide clothing for the man and the woman are sheep, two lambs of God. John MacArthur says that these animals, however, are a shadow of the reality that God would someday kill a substitute to redeem sinners. They're a shadow. Third, as we look at the text for grace, we see a conversation, of, we see a conversation among the Godhead, God talking with himself and an eviction. God is having a conversation with himself about Adam and Eve, and, and God is concerned. He shows great concern. And he says, now that they are proven rebels and spiritually dead from us, If they eat from the tree of life, they will remain spiritually dead for eternity. You see that? That great concern? If they eat from this tree, which was meant for their benefit and good, at this point in time, that won't be good for them. This is entirely gracious. God doesn't want man to live eternally in the state of rebellion. So for man's own sake... He needed to be removed from the garden, and God evicted him. God evicted him. You know, our world needs more grace evictions. This is a grace eviction. When you see someone's state in life, and you realize maybe the best place for them is not here, it's out there somewhere. A grace eviction. How many parents do I know and see struggle every year with a 25-year-old, a 35-year-old, a 55-year-old in the home? 
How many parents falsely believe that grace demands that they let their adult children linger around the house instead of evicting them? Genesis 1, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall be one flesh. Do you realize that it is a sign of spiritual maturity and trust in the sovereignty of God to practice a grace eviction where you see someone's life, the state that it's in, and you realize that your opportunity to sanctify them has relatively come to an end, but the world will sanctify them. The world will draw them closer to God and off they go. Now, this is something for the Jones house. It's just been uh, 101 from the beginning because I really love their mother <laughs> and I really want to spend time with her. And so 18 is your limit. That's, that's when you go, 18. <laughs> Plan on it, you know. We're, we're, making, we're making plans that you get a chance and get a running start at being a man and step out there and, and have a go at life. And this is what God did. God evicted Adam and Eve. Eviction was the perfect and final demonstration in Genesis 3 of this beautiful intertwining of justice and grace. And the eviction is brought about by two conditions of man that require that Christ come. We talked about the conditions of man last week, and I'm going to finish up on this point. Last week, we talked about two conditions of man. We're going to finish with the other two conditions, four total conditions of man that require Christ come. This is that addendum, really. The character of God is a central message the justice and the grace of God. But this is also why Christ came. You know this. He came to save us. Well, from what? From not being Holy Spirit-filled. From not being independent. And here in Genesis 3, we saw that given perfect knowledge and then subjected to the influence of Satan, man does not have wisdom. There's no wisdom in man. This is the third condition that requires Jesus come. Wisdom is the practical demonstration of knowledge. Knowledge was given to Adam and Eve, but wisdom takes knowledge to the next logical step, putting it into action. In Genesis 3, man proves to have no wisdom. Three failures. He failed to counteract the influence of Satan. He failed to speak truth when confronted. And he would have failed by grabbing the fruit of the tree of life and thereby ensuring eternal separation from God. Man's condition is totally wisdomless and demands that Jesus come. Without wisdom intervention by God, man is helpless. God knows we need a controlling influence that will allow us to gather knowledge and put it into action in ways of righteousness that give God glory, the very purpose for which we were created. It is for this purpose, Jesus said in John 14, 16, talking about the possibility of the, the soon coming eviction of himself out of the world. He said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. It was better that Christ go so that we could have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And finally, the fourth condition of man that required Jesus come, the fourth condition is that inside of us, as a result of all of the fall of Adam and Eve, there is no life. There is no life. Rebellion brought spiritual death. And thankfully, God did not allow them to eat from the tree of the knowledge or tree of life, but he evicted them before that could happen. As a result, we are not only spiritually dead, but we are bound to physically die as well. We're lifeless. Do you see this? This is the threat of our lives in the course of all of humanity. You're born spiritually dead. You then will physically die. And after you physically die, you will be 
led to an eternal death. Death, death, death. Dead men walking. Dead though we live. Dead yet we stand. This is the price of rebellion to God. Lifelessness. No life at all. Only death. Life is only had in the same way that Adam and Eve found life. In trusting the promises of God and obeying the commands of God. Trust and obey. I'm going to guess you've heard that before. Trust and obey. This alone is life. Man is predisposed through spiritual death to fail in trusting and obeying. And as a result, our lifelessness demands that Jesus come. You know, through my time in this study, I was so blessed to see how Genesis 3 takes this massive laser and focuses it right on the cross of Jesus Christ, even, even on the manger where Christ was laid. Genesis 3, there's a direct thread to the life and person of Jesus Christ in this, the character of God, his justice and grace being perfectly intermingled at one intersection. He is the one. You know, unlike the rebellious challenge outcome of the Boy Scouts, in God's response to rebellion, character is made more clear and certain. Don't we see that in Christ? Character, the character of God is so clear and certain. I want to finish our time by turning to Romans chapter 5. I think this will be a, a good place for a conclusion. Jesus is the one from the promise in Genesis 3.15. He is the one who will perfectly trust and obey God. He is the one who can fix our spiritual death by having our sin imputed to him. And at Genesis 3, God showed perfect justice and grace. And yet in Christ, God has proven to show even more perfect justice and grace in sending him. Romans 5, these three verses, 15 to 17. Can I read this with you now? But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. He is the one. Justice and grace are beautifully intertwined in Genesis 3, and Jesus Christ is the perfect intersection and demonstration of justice and grace. And he is our great hope, is what Paul says in the text. Paul says here in Romans, we will reign in life with Jesus Christ forever. Why come? Why come? Justice and grace demand that Jesus come. The character of God demands that he come, and our helpless condition demand that he come. My great hope is that you would take this message and look at the manger scene and see the Son of God, the Savior, the baby in the manger, and that you would be so thrilled to know that he came to love himself first 
and that was best. And in doing so with his justice and his grace and his holiness and his righteousness, that he also came to save even us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, what powerful justice you have. You must exercise justice. And when justice was required for you to demonstrate, to uphold your character, you did not step away. And that's what we read today in Genesis 3. You did not back away from justice and exacting justice, nor did you step back and step away from exacting justice out of your son. That's what he wanted. And justice is coming. Justice is coming to the whole world and all of creation. At the end of time, as we read earlier, there will be another judgment yet, but your grace, your grace will be seen then in the future. Your grace is seen now and your grace was seen in the garden. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you gave us grace. We need it. Let us live in it in Christ's name. Amen.